This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. It's not like every country in the world has incredibly weak online privacy protections for each person's individual information. No, we're just lucky to live in the United States of America, the home of the free, the land of the brave, and the home where our data can be freely taken from us, while others profit from the information without our knowledge or consent, and then that information can be used against us in some manipulative fashion. I mean, privacy is a guaranteed right in the U.S. Constitution, even if the word privacy is actually never mentioned in the document. But as the Fifth Amendment protects against self-incrimination, that protection in turn protects the privacy of personal information. If one cannot incriminate themselves, then their privacy must be recognized. And the U.S. Supreme Court has confirmed that ruling in several decisions. But unlike the U.S. of A. in places like the European Union, they actually make it so nobody can take your personal data and do whatever they want with it. They actually protect citizen privacy. I know, go figure. But that EU citizen privacy is about to be changed, altered by a world increasingly driven by personal data. The EU is considering a number of plans to make certain the collection and storage and management of personal information is not in any way abused, while also getting value out of the data. And that data can be very valuable to researchers whose work could benefit society. Or it can be commodified, bought, sold, traded, and out of any citizen control, which is what many have feared in the past when private entities have tried to take over personal data. We know they can't be trusted with our personal information. They've even admitted to it. They, they admit that they cannot be trusted. So how can we benefit from data collection without any of the exploitative Big Brother disadvantages? We will try to figure that out in a few when we speak with public policy scholar Anna Artushina, who wrote the MIT Technology Review article, The EU is Launching a Market for Personal Data. Here's what that means for privacy. In a radical shift for the EU's data governance strategy, the Trusts Project promotes data sharing as a civic duty. Anna's work focuses on data governance and smart cities. She is a PhD candidate in science and technology studies at York University in Canada. You can follow Anna on Twitter at socioanna. S-O-C-I-O, Anna. Listener Daniel T. suggested we have Anna on the show. Thanks, Daniel. If anybody sends a guest suggestion to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com or tweets to, to us at This Is Hell Radio or messages that to us at Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio, we will share your suggestion on air. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will personally thank you as well. So thanks, Daniel, for telling us about Anna's work. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth. Radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, and our new Tuesday producer is someone named Alex Jerry. Alex, what have you been up to? Uh, just want to say big thanks to all the people who did all the hard work on the uh, Hee Haw Wikipedia article. It's a great reading when you're awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you about read death. about the TV show Hee Haw? Uh, yeah, they, there's a, it's a big Wikipedia entry on uh, Hee Haw. It is really thorough. Good job, everyone. Uh, don't read in the middle of the night. Don't read what happened to David Stringbean Aikman because that was uh, unexpected to go from um, a description of him wearing a long nightshirt tucked into a pair of uh, short blue jeans belt around his knees, giving him the comical appearance of a very tall man with stubby legs. Oh, God. A Aikman and his wife were murdered by burglars in their rural Tennessee home near Ridgetop in 1973. Wow. So that's a turn you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah, I did not see that one. <laughs> More importantly, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? 
Next week's quest from hell is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. And special thanks to Frederick B., who showed his appreciation for This Is Hell last night by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks, Frederick. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, which returns this week. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest, following Anna. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff to This Is Hell 2251. West Devon, D-E-V-O-N, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. You can also find that information, I believe, at our contact page at thisishell.com when you click on contact. And we got something in the mail from our really great friends at KP Printing in Detroit. Such good friends. They keep sending us beautiful art. And we have absolutely no idea where they are in Detroit, as their return address is a post office box. You may remember KP Printing from the last piece of art they sent us, with, which is a cardboard 6 by 8 inch card that inclu- includes these words. Let me see. We've got the older one over here. Biden, the last sexist president. And no, I do not know what that means either. Although it is something I wish actually becomes true, but I'm betting is not very likely. This time, the good people at KP Printing sent us another exquisitely crafted 6 by 8 inch card. And this one says, progress brings its own problems, which is a fantastic tagline for This Is Hell. Progress brings its own problems. This is hell. So thanks to whoever the good people at KP Printing are. We truly appreciate it and would love to actually meet you someday, either in Detroit or whenever we have our 25th anniversary party. And with so many getting vaccines here in the States, I know they're having issues with it where Anna is up in Canada right now. I have had a lot of people asking me when we are going to start up This Is Hell office hours again, our weekly Friday Drink and Think here at Carrie's Lounge, which we were doing every Friday up until the first week of March last year when the pandemic hit. Listeners have also been asking, so when's the 25th anniversary party? If we were to schedule the party for 25 years the day of our first show, then we would all be together partying sometime in late July. According to several models for herd immunity, however, offered in a February New York Times article, it would appear that at the latest we would have herd immunity we have achieved herd immunity in late july just in time for the party on the other hand the science journal nature had a story a month after the times piece stating that we may never have herd immunity as it is uncertain if vaccines actually stop transmission of the virus the vaccine rollout has been unequal and uneven there's the new variants immunity may not last forever and vaccines are proving to change human behavior not in a good way but a way in which the disease can spread as we have seen with this latest surge so we still very much plan on and hope to have our 25th anniversary party this year with music food art opening all the stuff that we always have 
However, at this time, we do not have a set date. We are currently talking over with management here at Carrie's Lounge about when it would be safe to have an unlimited size crowd at the bar celebrating together again, if that's ever possible again. And when we have a date nailed down, and I would really like it to be Labor Day weekend, we will tell you here on the show. We also got an email from Ivar. Ivar writes, your interview two weeks ago with Jonathan Ellis and Brian Bean on their rampant magazine article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist Movement in a New Era, got me thinking, and my conclusions based on their interview and article were pretty hellish. The authors, Ellis and Bean, basically expect an anti-imperialist movement to rise in the United States, drawing parallels to the organizing on the occasions of the first Gulf War, the subsequent invasion of Iraq, or the prior organizing that occurred over Vietnam. However, my understanding in these cases is that the imperialist machine has to become very egregious in its actions in order to arouse opposition, like 10 years of war in which U.S. citizens are being drafted and dying, or an invasion that involves fairly obvious lies in the breaking of international law. Otherwise, I don't think that most U.S. citizens really care. In fact, when it comes right down to it, I think a large portion of the U.S. population is complicit, and they do not worry about it, like Kathy Kelly or listener Courtney, who wrote you asking about how not to be complicit. Since large swaths of the populace get crumbs from the imperialist table, I think that they support it. People definitely do not want to become poor, like a real adjustment of world finance away from capitalist imperial exploitation would risk. So while most U.S. citizens may be ignorant about the U.S. imperial system, in reality they choose ignorance as a form of support for the imperialist capitalist system. Deep down, many may have some awareness that the U.S. is a wealthy country through its gaming of the rules of international trade in its favor, but they are ultimately happy to take advantage of the crumbs that they get. So this tacit support for the existing system, plus the impossibility of fundamentally changing it due to the massive opposition of the capitalist imperialist class and their immense sway over all official institutions makes me very pessimistic about fundamental change. Yes, this is hell. Thank you for not being the media. Best wishes, Ivar. After all that, best wishes? You'd think I'd at least get a good luck. Ivar, with climate change continuing, the pandemic again surging, it is easy to think that people simply don't care. And some may not care, believing there is no cost to their happiness. The economist who came up with Reaganomics and recently died lived in a restored Renaissance-era palazzo in Italy. I'm certain he was plenty happy living there and never giving a second thought to the misery Reaganomics wrought on the most vulnerable, leading to homelessness on a scale that had not been seen since the Great Depression, or that the euro he created has led to neoliberalism trumping democracy within the EU, and when business interests trump democratic values, you have the perfect toxic recipe for the rise of fascism. And what do you know? The far right is stronger in both the U.S. and EU than ever. But, Ivar, your thought that we choose this ignorance to avoid recognizing our own complicity, it's hard not to, right? If you constantly consider how your actions are complicit in a system that you find unjust and destructive to both the people and the planet, a system that seemingly cannot be changed, and your actions can only change to a certain extent as you need to survive within that exploitative system, that's the kind of hell that can be emotionally devastating and incredibly difficult to confront. Damn, Ivar, that is hellish. Finally, we got an email, email from Margaret. Margaret writes, Hi, Chuck and Alex. I started listening to the show in 2019, and it's really helped me keep sane over the past year. Not sure if you've done this in the past, but I wanted to suggest a hangover cure for your weekly hangover cure that you announce every Monday. 
Kishkia. It's a thousand-year-old hangover cure from one of the oldest Arabic cookbooks. The video below has more details and a recipe to follow. Thank you again for your work. Margaret then links to a video from Ancient Recipes with Sola, S-O-H-L-A. In this episode, Sola cooks a 1,000-year-old hangover cure. Unfortunately, Margaret, we have already offered Kishkia as a hangover cure on the show, but we appreciate the suggestions. Now let's get to your far and more concerning comment about how this is how really helped you keep sane over the past year. Because this show's driving me crazy. Please, Margaret, please tell me what part of the show helped keep you sane because I must have missed that part and I need to go back and listen to that part of our show because I'm, I'm going off my freaking nut. And in yesterday's conversation about how much my taste in music is dictated by corporate algorithms and how much my whole life is and what that means for the crappy culture we're moving toward as fast as we're approaching extreme climate change and more pandemics. Again, Margaret... Please, please tell me how this freaking show is keeping you sane because I'm losing it. You can send us your comments to the show, guest or topic suggestions to us via email. You can DM them to us via Twitter. You can message them to us via Facebook. And again, you can send us actual stuff in the actual mail to this is held 2251 West Devon, Chicago, Illinois 60659. Coming up, the EU is creating a market for their citizens' personal information, which is a creepy sentence, but it might not be as bad as you think it is, or it might be worse. Not too sure. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Don't forget, we have to have your answer to the question from hell by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex will also be telling us who is on the show for the rest of the week. This is not the media. This is hell. Our personal private information was not protected here in the United States, and when people became aware their information was being shared by so many, bought and sold, doing Lord knows what with it, many were incredibly upset. Social media giants shot back defending their use of our information by saying there was an unwritten agreement between the platform, which offers the service, and the user who gets it for free. All users have to do is give up their privacy. Meanwhile, in the EU, citizens' privacy was protected, keeping it safe from such exploitation. But the EU is now considering lifting those protections and asking citizens to do their civic duty by sharing their private data. Here to guide us through the fascinating EU debate over online privacy, public policy scholar Anna Artushina wrote the MIT Technology Review article, The EU is Launching a Market for Personal Data. Welcome to This is Hell, Anna. Good morning. Hello. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Anna's work focuses on data governance in smart cities. She's a PhD candidate in science and technology studies at York University, Canada, and listener Daniel T. sent us a link to Anna's work and suggested we have her on the show. So thanks, Daniel. Daniel wrote, you guys rule. Thanks for all you do. Guest suggestion, Anna Artushina. She has done a lot of work on different approaches to the governance of private data. I'm especially interested in her work on data trust and on how to achieve a balance between protecting privacy and enabling research. So thanks, Daniel T., for suggesting Anna as a guest. And you can follow Anna 
on Twitter, at SocioAnna. You write, the European Union has long been a trendsetter in privacy regulation. Its general data protection regulation and stringent antitrust laws have inspired new legislation around the world. For decades, the EU has codified protections on personal data and fought against what it viewed as commercial exploitation of private information proudly positioning its regulations in contrast the light touch privacy policies in the United States. So if these stringent antitrust laws and these privacy protections have been have inspired new legislation around the world, what might happen if those antitrust laws are no longer as stringent? If that privacy is no longer regulated as well, do you think that around the world we might see again weaker legislation? Well, we are living through a historical moment where central to this, to the political agenda is this idea that we need to challenge the power of big tech and we need to redistribute the value created by the data economy. Um, I am specifically interested in the future of privacy. Um, and right now I study civic data governance, specifically the policies and technologies that seek to use the data for public purposes, like data trusts or data cooperatives. And like you said, uh, when we think about data trust, the European Union is certainly a trendsetter. In, in the paper that I wrote for, for the MIT review, I was looking into the European data governance strategy and the concept of European markets for personal data. And interestingly, since then, since last August, I've seen the growing interests in, uh, interest in data trust as a means to boost artificial intelligence in several J7 countries. For instance, in, in March in the UK, the EI Council and Cambridge University launched the Data Trust Initiative. The Canadian Digital Charter specifically names data trusts as a means AI and national data economy. Last week, Belgium launched the AI Institute for the Common Good, which, which will operate its own data hub. And one aspect I, I find specifically interesting and perhaps a little problematic is that um, data trusts become a geopolitical instrument. And as such, they gain significant symbolic and economic power. Like if you if you uh, listen closely, European Commissioner Thierry Breton puts the new policies in clearly geopolitical terms when he argues that the European Union must counter the strong position of the American and Chinese companies in the European markets. So this is, um, the new legislation is coming, but first we'll see a set of new technologies and we see perhaps what you might call a Faustian bargain around privacy and data sharing. Wow, so that came up from our question from hell. So how successful have these, uh, has the general data protection regulation in the EU, how successful has that been at not allowing what is known as surveillance capitalism? That is an economy centered around commodifying personal data for profit. Is the situation with surveillance capitalism in the European Union very different from what we have here in the United States? Uh, well, that's a great question. Thank you. So I've been I've been talking to a lot of um, uh, people who work in data governance, public officials, and work people who work in the industry, and European citizens who experience the the effects of the GDPR. And what um, the, like the fast answer is that we don't know. Like this is so far. GDPR has been only partially successful. This is definitely a right step. Uh, in a way that it gives the residents, European residents, uh, uh, the right to know what, what data is being collected about them. It definitely is the right step because it um, actually allows everyone to understand 
how how the data economy works. But unfortunately, and this has been uh, mentioned in the latest review performance review cre- uh, released by the European Commission, the GDPR has not been successful in enforcing technology companies, you know, to protect uh, data privacy. So what happens is that uh, some uh, some digital rights, and this is the key to understand the GDPR, is that it actually gives individuals rights to understand their data, to move their data from one service provider to another, to forbid you know certain types of information from being processed. So some of this uh, some of these rights just cannot be enforced because there is no enough digital infrastructure to do that, and I think. One of the reasons why uh, the EU has moved to launch the Data Trust Initiative and th- this whole approach, you know, to building the their own data server infrastructure, it stems from this idea that to make the privacy work, we we can actually we should decouple personal data from the companies that trade in data. Otherwise, no privacy legislation is going to be effective. What explains this change in thinking? You write that the new European data governance strategy takes a fundamentally different approach from the past with it. The EU will become an active player in facilitating the use and monetization of its citizens' personal data unveiled by the European Commission in February 2020. The strategy Mm -hmm. outlines policy measures and investments to be rolled out in the next five years. So what explains the change in thinking? Does the EU see itself as being behind the U.S. when it comes to profiteering off of data, that it is not kept up and they are realizing there's money to be made, there's nothing to stop it, and given those circumstances, the EU should profit as well? What what are their motivations to change? Uh, so so this European, uh, the new European data governance strategy it has two objectives. So the first objective is to cut access to personal and non-personal data collected from European residents for the American companies. This is very ambitious. And the European Cloud Initiative is one way of doing it. When, when the European data service already companies like Facebook want to be able to move the data from the continent and the extent of Facebook's engagement with the data will be closely monitored through the new program interfaces. So this is the way to actually enforce the GDPR. So um, to the same effect, as I understand, the EU has withdrawn from the privacy shell, the, the digital transfer agreement with the United States, which had existed for 20 years. And um, back to your question. So the second objective is, so um, what they're trying to do, that they're building a sovereign digital economy. This is where the data trusts come in. So, um, like you mentioned, the Data Governance Act proposes establishing the markets for the personal and non-personal data collected from European residents. And they plan to do this in, in different areas, like in healthcare, mobility, environment, public administration, agriculture. So the key idea behind this is, is Europe is big enough to have its own Silicon Valley. So yes, it should lead in artificial intelligence in terms of research um, and, and the industry, of course. And they expect that the fruits of the data economy will contribute to the well-being of all Europeans. Last week, I don't know if you've seen this, European Council has approved the Digital Europe program, which allocates 7 million Europe to the European companies working in the areas of artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. So what, um, 
they expect that by introducing the um, the new legislation and the new actor, which is uh, data stewards, professional data managers, they will help individuals to navigate this new privacy landscape. Um, so, so through through these companies, they will eat or public agencies, you will be able to understand what happens with your data. You will be able to uh, restrict certain types of data from being processed, and you will be able to donate data. So I, I think the idea of you know teaching teaching people to share the data this is also uh, this is also key to understanding this this pivotal you know new new data governance strategy. I, I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. You did. Uh, and you also write that data trusts were first proposed by Internet pioneer Sir Tim Berners-Lee in 2018. And the concept has drawn considerable interest since then. Just like the trusts used to manage one's property, data trusts may serve different purposes. They can be for-profit enterprises or they can be set up for data storage and protection or to work for a charitable cause. IBM and MasterCard have built a data trust to manage the financial information of their European clients in Ireland. The UK and Canada have employed data trust to stimulate the growth of the AI industries there. And recently, India announced plans to establish its own public data trust to spur the growth of technology companies. And you were just earlier listing all of the other ways in which data trusts are being used, including in Belgium. Can managing financial information, stimulating growth of AI, or growth of technology companies, can any of those lead to the abuse of personal data? Can any of those things be achieved without collecting personal data? Um, well, this is an excellent question, and I think it's a complex one. So uh, I think we, what we are seeing is a great social experiment, and we will see how it works out. So uh, my understanding is that uh, the interest in data trusts stems from the fact that privacy laws around the world do not seem to work. Because and and uh, one of the reasons why they're not working is that data still resides with the companies that collect data, right? And another thing, there is um, there is a growing interest in in the public sector, in the private sector, to reuse this data. So um, if 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 we were to have uh, the markets for personal data. We probably will have them. The Europe will have some soon. I don't know if this is going to be replicated in the United States. Um, um, but the idea of a market for personal data is that we have um, we, we pull the data together, and we have someone else, not Facebook, not not any of the Silicon Valley giants, manage this data. Uh, so. Can this lead to the abuse of data? Yes, yes, it, it may, it can, because uh, when when you feed the data to to the big system, to when you feed the data to the AI, well, something can happen. This is this is it's hard to manage the data once it's out there. However, um, as as someone who's been researching data trust for two years, I see. Um, I see a lot of potential in this approach. I see a lot of potential in the technologies. So I, I should probably explain that. The data trust is an umbrella term, uh, which refers to a variety of technologies and legal concepts. And um, so, for instance, we, I, I see a lot of promise in personal data spaces. So in a nutshell, you can rent uh, a cloud, a personal server, to store the data collected from your devices. 
And this will allow you to, you know, to negotiate with, with Facebook or any other app you're using and decide what kind of data you're sharing. So this is one way uh, we can actually empower individuals, you know, to live in this new data economy. Uh, I see a lot of interesting applications of the data trust idea for charitable causes, like um, uh, one of the most interesting uh, projects in North America is a Silicon Valley uh, data trusts, which is um, a data cooperative created by several school boards and the University of California for, for the educational and social uh, purposes. So basically they, they deal, like, they work with the most sensitive data there is children's data and they work to uh, to so so the schools and the social services pull the data together it's only them who can access to this data so, so who have access to the data and what they do they use this data for for research purposes and i think uh this is one of the um, possible directions for this and one of the positive things about this new um, data governance strategies is is that we can actually use the data to um, to empower to, to 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 promote our collective interests to to promote to uh, to build a better society, and um, I, I would say another interesting applications of the data trust would be uh, uh, driver seat collectives also in the United States. So this is also data cooperative. And what they do, they allow the drivers who work in the ride sharing industry to pull the data together to negotiate their rights, you know, in the battle with Uber. So those are just, just a few examples of how in the new economy, technology and this new legal concept that can be used, you know, to reuse the data and to actually give you more value out of data, non-monetary value. So I, 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 see, I, I see a lot of potential here. Um, when, when it comes to the commercial data and, and, and uh, commercialization of data, um, I think, well, I, I think it's hard to make things worse <laughs> just, just because um, you may not know it, but many services you're using actually reselling your data. And this is not the apps, those are, you know, hospitals, dental clinics, you know, people who are in organizations, you actually have no idea could be doing this, but there is a market for personal and personalized data. And so I think what, uh, what the U is doing and what uh, people have been doing here in, in Canada and the United States is an attempt to build this digital infrastructure, perhaps public digital infrastructure, which would allow us to have all the services without compromising our privacy. So, you know, <laughs> contradictory, but it, it, it may work, you know, to promote privacy, having more data sharing, but in a more controlled way. I, I hope it's clear. I don't know. No, it, it is. So how how devastating do you think this could, not that I really care, but how devastating could this be to the bottom line of Facebook, of a company that does, any company that does make a lot of money in dealing personal information? Uh, it can be devastating. So the, the thing is, um, oh, data trusts and, and the whole, this whole new data economy will only work if we we all participate. And so I think, so one of the 
barriers to 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 making this work we we actually need to proactively defend our data so like i said i see a lot of potential in personal data spaces but if you if you start managing your data you you, you have to learn how to do this you have to understand this and uh, while those apps those new interfaces they're wonderful they're very helpful it will require a new staff, you know, it require a new practice for all of us, you know, to, to make him the time to understand what Facebook wants for us and what kind of information we're gonna share. If this is if this works, uh, well, they 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 won't have those silos of data, right? So that might potentially mean uh, they, they either start com complying or you know, we'll see the decline of Facebook and other apps which will fail to adjust to this new regime. Are, so, you, are users, do you think users are ready to manage their data like that? Do you think they are, that they're, that they're concerned enough about their privacy that they're ready to do that kind of function? Uh, I think uh, this much to be desired because I, as far as I remember, um, the latest Pew research shows that 40% uh, 40, 40 of Americans still get their news from Facebook. And uh, when, when it comes to privacy, when we, <laughs> people always say they're concerned about privacy, but when it comes to, you know, taking an action, there's going to be a problem. And uh, when, when I talk to the people who, um, I, I, once again, in the government and in the industry who are trying to build those solutions, they see um, a lot of need for the public education, you know, because the, I, I, I think what, what is not, what, what's been lost in the discussion is that uh, there is no, there is no such thing as a free service online. And people still ex expect, you know, to 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 get things for free, to get things without, you know, pay attention. And I think this will change. I, I actually think that while I'm, I'm very concerned about state surveillance, like like everyone else, I think the involvement of the state in this respect may be helpful as we starting to build this new uh, digital infrastructure, which allow, you know, people to keep their data safely which allow maybe, you know, someone uh, will need to attend the courses, you know, take, take, take the time to educate themselves. So this is the whole new job for all of us to learn how to live in the new data economy. But either way, I think there is no coming back. Yeah, that's that's very important to remember. We are speaking with public policy scholar Anna Artushina, who wrote the MIT Technology Review article, The EU is Launching a Market for Personal Data. You can follow Anna on Twitter at SocioAnna. Anna, you also write that the EU's new plan considers personal data to be a key asset for Europe. However, this approach raises some questions. First, the EU's intent to profit from the personal data it collects puts European governments in a weak position to regulate the industry. Why does profit-seeking undermine regulation? I mean, I understand the conflict of interest, but you know, self-regulation is a major part of the regulatory process and the belief that entities will make certain they are not doing anything wrong because being caught doing so would be devastating to their bottom line. So why does profit-seeking necessarily undermine regulation? 
Um, I, I think we uh, we've seen this a lot, uh, you know, with with the previous iteration of the EU privacy and data protection legislation. Uh, when like each each of the documents the GDPR included um, has been a subject to you know very <laughs> years long lobbying, and uh, every time we see uh, the battle around how we define privacy, how we define uh, like right now, there is uh, there is a lot of discussion about uh, how how the Europe how Europe will build uh, data trust, data stewards, because one approach, and I think they are um, they're taking it safely for now. So for now, they want to use the data for non-monetary purposes. So they they want to use the data for a public purpose, like like in healthcare or in public administration, and uh, this is a step, you know, towards teaching uh, Europeans, you know, about about their privacy, about these new data governance practices. It's not quite clear, though, uh, how they will be able to release this data for the commercial purposes. Purposes, and I've, I've spent, you know, several months reading and rereading the the latest documentation and speaking with the with the people who work on them, and I see um, that. And this is probably a little scary. They, they're trying to uh, make the right balance between the commercial interests and the interests of privacy. And so far, um, I, I don't think there is a clear understanding of how to do that. Simply because if you allow uh, for the data to be reused, if if you if you make the data collected, uh, you know, amassed on this huge public. Uh, data trusts, uh, oh, sorry, data service. If you make this data available, this opens the door to, um, you know, to at least a possibility of, of you know, uh, commercial reuse, which is undesirable. And um, for the EU government, I think I think there is a there is a contradiction between between the declared goal of you know building the new data economy, and uh, you know uh, protecting privacy. And I think and I, I see this a lot that you know the word privacy it actually slips away, <laughs> it disappears from the documents. And um, well, it may not be you know bad thing because no one really knows what privacy is these days. But uh, I think there was a, there is a lot of conflict around how to use the data, you know, without uh, allowing the companies basically do the same thing that Silicon Valley companies do. So this is a big question. That's an open question, and I I don't think that people who came up with the data governance strategy know the answers. So if the EU were to profit from selling personal data. Have they suggested where they what they would do with the money that they would make off of selling personal data? Have they said that here in the United States, one of the things that allowed for the lottery to happen back in the 1970s was every state said that that money was going to go toward education. Whether it went to education or not, you can see in the United States, we're not really doing a lot of funding of education. So where do they say they're going to be uh, putting this money that they profit from selling uh, European Union citizens' private data? I, I think they approach a little more nuanced. So they are suggesting that uh, by uh, 
creating the pools of personal and non-personal data and making this data available for the European companies only, they will have these new uh, businesses, which will, which will eventually, you know, create a lot of tax revenue, but they will also, you know, have to work on the, uh, on this designated uh, goals, like, like, you know, bettering public services, bettering healthcare, bettering um, agriculture. So my and so so far, what I see is that the EU is uh, is ready to fund this company, these companies. You know, so they they are ready to invest in the European businesses who will uh, who will work with with this new newly released data. And I think um, the interesting part here, I don't think that's going to be the government who releases the data. So the idea is that you have this pool, and the good thing is that unlike uh, unlike the private data management structure, the pool won't be able to resell your data, uh, and you have the laws. You still have the GDPR and the new legislation that coming uh, that's coming around the Data Governance Act to protect the data, you know, stored on the um, on, on, in in those data pools, and you will have individuals who will some of them will will want to uh, make some money off of their data and this will be possible you know through the data market uh, another way you know the data can be donated if this is a research purpose and it can be reimbursed it cannot be reimbursed depending on the trust so i think what they're trying to do um, they're trying to create this new data economy where uh, individuals you know, participate. <clears throat> I think they. Okay, I will, I will say it differently. I think um, the data, the uh, the European data strategy, is is very much inspired by the idea of the digital dividend, uh, and which is the idea that uh, as an individual you can be reimbursed for your data, and they're trying to find the channels for the people, you know, to uh, to opt out of, of the data collection, but but also to proactively participate in uh, in the new data governance, I don't know, initiatives. Um, I don't know if it's clear. It just sounds like there's a lot of surveillance capitalism going on at your house right now with the police. That's what I was thinking about. So, um, okay. yeah. Uh, so who who are you more concerned about? abusing the data that would be held by the data trust. We've been talking about private entities and how much they abuse data. To what extent could a data trust protect citizens from state abuse of their personal data? Uh, I, I'm not worried about that, uh, surprisingly, because I, uh, the main idea behind data trust is that you have an entity which, uh, which has your interests and so the the idea is that unlike the service provider who you know basically free to to resell your data to the highest bidder with the data trust it gives you more visibility as to where your data goes and i think the approach that um, all this the several countries take is that we, we will have a variety of data trusts and we will have a variety of mechanism for for individuals you know to to store and protect the data so like like i said i i see a lot of potential in personal data spaces which uh which should allow us you know to opt out of the data collection which which we don't feel like participating in um i am concerned though um with 
Well, I, I find it concerning that the government um, sees this as a, you know, as a geopolitical race. And, and I, I am concerned that the government is, the governments are thinking about, you know, realizing the value of the data, because my understanding is that privacy and, you know, citizen well-being should be at the heart of this. They should be put first. And I, I'm not sure this is what's happening. I, that's, that's probably my, my short answer to this. You know, that, and one of the things I was thinking about is that citizens, you know, they'll view their personal, inf- uh, sorry, personal information in terms of privacy, giving it mm-hmm. a certain value, while researchers and private entities may view that information, value it as in terms of data. So which individually does not equal, you know, the value of privacy is the problem that we that as an individual we are valuing this in terms of privacy while researchers and private entities and state entities are valuing this as data which has a far less value i mean you know my own personal data to a company like facebook might mean pennies but to me my privacy means a lot more is that part of the disconnect that we are having in accepting ideas like data trusts uh, no, I, well, I think the problem is, is that uh, the concept of privacy has been, you know, so far overly used and, and like we, we, we've been, over the last few years, we've been talking a lot about uh, Facebook's approach to privacy, privacy settings that, you know, uh, companies make us, you know, sign up for. Um, I, uh, I think, um, I think this is about finding. Well, I mean, one 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 way of looking at it is um, is the concept of the data feminism. And personally, I'm a big fan of you know trying to use the data for uh, for a good cause. Uh, I think though that privacy should be uh, should be you know understood as a value and as something that we, we should strive for. And I think we like we will we would all benefit from you know uh, coming up with clear terms for you know for the data governance strategies the, the government takes and private entities take and and for um, for understanding what privacy means for each individual. So I I think with the data trusts I we see a lot of potential you know in. Um, in helping everyone to realize their own definition of privacy. We see a lot of potential in collectives, you know, in protecting collective interests through reusing the data. Uh, I think when it comes to uh, research data, there is no much danger because we see, you know, some very reassuring examples coming from Europe, for instance, biobanks, which do reuse health data However, they do it in a you know harmless way, and in uh, under the GDPR, individuals have the right to know what 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 kind of data, what you know, what part of their data is being reused and for what purposes. And um, I think, as a general, um, in general, this is the way to go. Like there is there is no problem with scientists, you know, willing to get access to some types of information. There's a problem that right now. There is no regulation, you know, for this for this type of activity, and there's a problem uh, mostly in the U.S. and Canada is that uh, when uh, when a 
public agency or an organization decides to reuse the data, there is no one else, you know, to tell them how to do that. There is no regulation for that. You also I, go, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 no. This, this is a problem. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is a problem. And you also point out that the new EU project is modeled on Austria's digital system. You were mentioning this earlier, which keeps track of information produced by and about its citizens by assigning them unique identifiers and storing the data yeah. in public uh, repositories. Now, some people might be very happy with sharing their uh, privacy, as you were saying. I, th I think that everybody's definition of privacy may be different from one person to the other. And some people may be very happy with giving out their private data to private marketing companies so they can get targeted marketing for the products that they actually want. So can these identifiers actually, uh, can they cause problems when it comes to what people might want as a consumer online? So um, there are two things, okay. or maybe three things. First of all, um, I think um, that's a very interesting cultural divide between Europe and North America, because uh, in European countries, we don't see this conflict between the individual privacy and, and data sharing when it comes to the state. So Europeans are very concerned about uh, Facebook and I, I don't know, Silicon Valley companies, you know, gaining access to their data. But they have trust in the government and for uh, for people, I don't know, in Denmark, in Estonia, it's fine, you know, if 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 the public agency uh, have access as access to to their personal data. This is um, this is also something we, we should take into account. Obviously, such a model wouldn't work in the United States. Um, I think. Uh, with, with the latest documents, and we will see more coming, the EU is taking a more nuanced approach. So they, they do realize that, uh, you know, the digital panopticon model would not work in, uh, you know, in such a complicated structure, complex structures united uh, at the EU. And uh, also, you know, there are some political differences. There are economic differences uh, between the countries. So, what they're trying to do, they're trying to build the uh, the digital infrastructure, which will work at the supranational level. However, it will take into account, you know, the differences between uh, privacy legislation each, in each country. Say, for instance, uh, in Germany. They have their own privacy legislation, which is much more stricter than than what they have in, say, uh, in Denmark, or at least it's very different. Um, what else uh, about consumer rights? So I, I, I've seen very interesting projects uh, when it comes to um, to the markets for personal data, because there is there've been a lot of interest in in, in the digital dividend, and here in, in in North America, in Europe, we see uh, at least several attempts to set up the markets for 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 the personal data. How it works is that um, as a consumer, you agree to say, share your browsing history with the uh, data management app, and you will be reimbursed for this data. Uh, unfortunately, most of these projects have collapsed. Apparently, it's a big problem, you know, to find enough people, you know, willing to share their data. And also the, uh, the money generated by, by this exchange is not enough to support the interests 
the interest on, on the part of the consumer. So we will see how it works. My understanding is that uh, when we looking at the market of the size of the European Union, this might work. When we think that Europe is not quite sure uh, how how they're trying to how, how they will use the data. This this raises a lot of questions. So my understanding is that uh, they're they're planning to set up this uh, niche specific uh, markets for personal data. So it's not like they will have one big database of all European residents with unique identifiers. The idea is that they will have um, the pools of data, you know, collected from from the financial organizations, collected from from the individuals who are willing to donate their financial data for for the I don't know in exchange for for the compensation or for the research purposes. And so the idea is that if we have those multiple markets and data trust technologies allow us to make this data securely store it to, to, to secure to securely store this data to securely share this data so the idea is that they will be able you know to reuse the data without identifying it directly and without you know creating those huge personal accounts you know on each and every individual I don't know if it makes sense. Hi. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, so you also write that in some cases, data trusts have been used to strip individuals of their rights to control data collected about them. In October 2019, the government of Canada rejected a proposal by Alphabet Sidewalk Labs to create a data trust for Toronto's smart city projects. Sidewalk Labs had designed the trust in a way that secured the company's influence over citizens' data, and India's data trust faced criticism for giving the government unrestricted access to personal information by defining authorities as information fiduciary. So you are in Toronto. I remember when that yep. story about Sidewalk Labs and Alphabet broke. Uh, did side did Alphabet Sidewalk Labs, did they need to secure their influence over citizens' data for Toronto's smart city project? Did that project's success depend upon securing Alphabet Sidewalk Labs' influence over data? Well, I think uh, this project was flawed in so many ways. I, I specifically was researching the data governance part, and um, I, I was I was very much concerned about the uh, data trust being designed by a private company. And one thing I think, well, like the key problem with with the data governance strategy was that uh, Alphabet slash Cytoclabs were acting as a policymaker that was specifically outlined in the documents released by by their public partner uh, so they, they were they were here to create you know the, uh, the the data governance regulation they were using multiple channels to get access to the data and they were also sole source in the project so I would say yes. The um, the control over data was an essential part of the project. We, however, do not know much about the project, surprisingly, because like a huge chunk of the documentation has has never been released. And from the uh, from the documentation we we've, uh, we've seen, 
it's it's quite clear that the data is the cornerstone of of, of the whole uh, smart city project for you know for every products and every project they were planning to develop so according to to their uh to two of their privacy consultants um who came on the record uh sidewalk labs seek to secure you know licensing agreements uh for for all the data generated in the project so that's what that's what we know and uh, there, there have been you know they met with a lot of pushback uh, and i think this was not only coming from the public but it was also coming from from the government so somehow you know two two years into the project they basically lost the backing from from the federal government so yeah uh, that, i remember that story that was really <laughs> it was quite an amazing situation. We have been speaking with public policy a public policy scholar Anna Artushina who wrote the MIT Technology Review article The EU is launching a market for personal data. You can follow Anna on Twitter at socioanna. And I've got one last question for you and as we do with all of our guests our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer our audience may hate your response. And again, I want to thank listener Daniel T for suggesting we have you on the show because I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And this is not something that I knew much about before reading your work. So as your work focuses on data governance and smart cities, how vulnerable are smart city projects to persons to personal privacy? Are smart cities necessarily a threat to privacy? Well, the way um, this is this is a very complicated question. Thank you. Um, well, see, I told you yeah. it's the question from hell. <laughs> yes. So, so I've studied uh, smart cities for I think for three or four years now, and um, the surprising thing is that they do exist and they do not exist in a way that we don't see the projects of uh, of the size of and of the scale of Sidewalk Labs project like the entire city, you know, built from the ground up around data. But our cities are already smart cities. And are they a threat to privacy? The short answer is yes. The way they are being realized right now, they are. Because what happens now is uh, we see, um, you know, the growing uh, interest in using digital tracking, you know, in, in, in different, different services. In, in you know public services, private services, we see uh, a growing, we see an overuse, an overuse of, of of surveillance technology by the police, specifically in the United States, and uh, I would say, um, like as a um, as a way to extract as much data as possible from the city spaces, smart city, the smart city, like as a concept, is is a threat to privacy. However, uh, we see we see a way to you know to 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 build those technologies differently. And I'm speaking about once again about European projects around climate research, around you know health research, well-being research. So uh, I would not say that we should you know fight against smart cities per se. But once again, we need to regulate this area. We need to understand how this works. And I think smart cities should be 
should be built differently because so far, you know, most smart city companies uh, sell sell their services to law enforcement agencies. At least that's how it works in the United States. And uh, we see, you know, we, we don't see much interest in, you know, in helping the communities use the data for, for a public cause. We don't see, we see like, especially like specifically in Canada, I, 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 it, it was a pleasure to see, you know, uh, some public funded projects, which, which help, you know, uh, underprivileged communities, you know, to, to get the internet access, to, to get the new skills, to fully participate, you know, in the new uh, era where your career depends on your digital skills. And I think, there's a lot of promise in that. So once again, technology can be used, you know, for many different ways. And this is up to us to decide how we will use it. So, well, Anna, <laughs> it's, complicated. it's very complicated. And <laughs> I really, really enjoyed our conversation. And the next time you are going to post an article, publish a paper, please contact us, send it to us, because this is absolutely fascinating. We've been speaking with public policy scholar Anna Artushina, who wrote the MIT Technology Review article that you have to check out. The EU is launching a market for personal data, and you can follow Anna on Twitter at Socio Anna. And one last time, thanks to listener Daniel T for suggesting we have Anna on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's been a delight. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Alex, remind people what this week's question from hell is and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, uh, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Gerdes says, actual peace of mind for once in my life. (laughs) Damn, i got to try that. (laughs) Angela M. says, 45 is gone. Okay. There's one right after that one. It's just pretty bad, too. Uh, Benjamin C. says, a copy of the Star Wars Holiday Special on Betamax. <laughs> That's horrible. Have you ever seen that? Uh, no, I've never even seen a Betamax. Uh, you should just see this. the Star Wars Holiday Special. Is, it's, it's worth watching. Jacob J. says, a lucrative book deal to write the people's history of cancel culture. <laughs> let, me, let, me look up, uh, let me look up what Jacob J. has posted in the past to see if I can stop that. Vijay Prashad, I think, is working on that book right now. Uh, yeah, the, literally cancel culture with uh, the CIA assassination. <laughs> yes. uh, Greg M. says, eternal life on Earth with Henry Kissinger as a roommate. Be very careful how you word your request to the devil. <laughs> Adam A. says, a monkey's paw. What are you getting See, out- now that's what you need. What are you getting out of your... Uh, Faustian bargain. What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Gorilla G says a lousy point zero 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 one per stream or something. But hey, it adds up, right? <laughs> and it adds a link to his his Spotify playlist uh, or his uh, band, The Syllables. Uh, so go to a Facebook page and check out Ad- uh, Gorilla G's music and get that point zero 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 one percent up a little higher. <laughs> uh, Dan K says Effer said my soul had no value on the secondary market. <laughs> Warren L. says, extended warranty on all my appliances. And Kelly H. says, infinite scroll. So who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com, Alex? So excited about this. Uh, Scientist Luis Chavez will be on to talk about his uh, people's research on the pandemic dispatch. Scientists say land use drives new pandemics. But what if land isn't what they think it is? Yeah, I started reading that. It's really, really 
intense when you have to start rethinking of what land is. And just before today's show, you booked somebody for Thursday. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're going to have journalist Cerise Castle on to talk about her 13-part, 12-part series. Uh, it's still ongoing for Knock LA and the is A Tradition of Violence, the History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So that's at knock-la.com. Gangs in the police department. Who would have thought that? They're called the banditos. <laughs> They're very clever. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jury. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to our guest, Anna Artushina, staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>